You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Holistic Science The principle of circularity is certainly not new. Its origins lie in the development of holistic science over the past half millennium. Systems scientist and author Fritjof Capra told me that these ideas of holism have been around for a long time. He said, I think Leonardo da Vinci was the first in the 15th century. Leonardo had developed a science which is absolutely holistic, systemic and ecological, and he talked about things like the metabolism of a city. He said in a healthy city there is an unimpeded flow of people, of objects, of material goods and of waste. And he designed cities at several levels where you had several kinds of these flows. So he was the first to use the term healthy city. In the 20th century, one of the pioneers to take da Vinci's ideas forward was South African statesman Jan Smuts. In his 1926 book, Holism and Evolution, he proposed the theory of holism, which he described as a synthesis between Darwin's theory of evolution, Einstein's theory of relativity, and his own reflections on the evolution of mind, life, and matter. The result was a revolutionary concept with far-reaching implications. What Smuts claimed to have identified was nothing less than the ultimate synthetic, ordering, organizing, regulative activity in the universe, which accounts for all the structural groupings and syntheses in it. Smuts's theory of holism was the precursor to what came to be known as systems thinking, which was emerging in Europe in the 1930s and 1940s, and was ultimately formalized by the Austrian Ludwig von Bertalanffy in his 1968 book, General Systems Theory. By the early 1980s, these ideas had begun to influence various disciplines, from physics and biology to healthcare and economics. This was eloquently synthesized in Capra's 1982 book, The Turning Point, which had as its origins a course that he taught at the University of California, Berkeley, which was called Beyond the Mechanistic Worldview. The theory, which Capra now calls living systems theory, has continued to evolve and is presented in his subsequent books like The Web of Life in 1996 and The Hidden Connections in 2002. What has happened in the last 25 or 30 years, Capra told me, is that science has developed the language and the tools to really build theories that embody this holistic philosophy. What has happened with the help of computers is that mathematicians and scientists have developed complexity theory, known technically as nonlinear dynamics, where they can actually map this nonlinear interconnectedness and set up equations and solve them. And so there's a whole new language, the language of chaos theory and of complexity theory, with concepts like attractors and bifurcation diagrams and fractal geometry and things like that. These concepts did not exist 30 years ago, so now, when we study nonlinear systems, we know which questions to ask, we know how to go about it. 
Spaceship Earth. At the same time as these ideas were gaining traction in science and mathematics in the 1960s, there was a parallel movement that began applying similar thinking to the field of ecology, resulting in the popular metaphor of Spaceship Earth. In a 1965 speech to the United Nations, the American politician Adlai Stevenson said, We travel together, passengers on a little spaceship dependent on its vulnerable reserves of air and soil. The following year, economist Barbara Ward published a book called Spaceship Earth, declaring that our planet is not much more than the capsule within which we have to live as human beings. We depend on a little envelope of soil and a rather larger envelope of atmosphere for life itself, and both can be contaminated and destroyed. The theme was echoed by fellow economist Kenneth Boulding, who published an essay in 1966 called The Economics of the Coming Spaceship Earth. He contrasted the cowboy economy, an open economy with seemingly boundless frontiers and limitless resources, with the spaceman economy, a closed economy of the future in which the Earth has become a single spaceship without unlimited reservoirs of anything, either for extraction or for pollution, and in which, therefore, man must find his place in a cyclical ecological system. Two years later, the polymath Buckminster Fuller furthered these ideas in his book Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth. In the top 50 sustainability books which I published, I observed that Fuller's ideas are as remarkable for their overall message as for their elaborate concepts that were ahead of their time. For example, he introduced terms like synergy, which is the behavior of wholes unpredicted by the behavior of their parts, and topology, which began to build a theory of systems thinking for ecology. Even the concept of externalities was in evidence when he said, I feel that one of the reasons why we are struggling inadequately today is that we reckon on our costs on far too short-sighted a basis and are later overwhelmed with the unexpected costs brought about by our short-sightedness. Today, former CEO of 7th Generation Jeffrey Hollander agrees, saying, The deck has been stacked against those companies who are attempting to apply the principles of full cost accounting to their operations, and it would be disingenuous to shy away from discussing the large challenges we must overcome in order to transition to a more just and sustainable society. According to Fuller, it is obvious that the real wealth of life aboard our planet is a forward-operating, metabolic and intellectual regenerating system. And yet we have been misusing, abusing and polluting this extraordinary chemical energy interchanging system for successfully regenerating all life aboard our planetary spaceship. He concludes somewhat verbosely that this all brings us to a realization of the enormous educational task which must be successfully accomplished right now in order to convert man's spin dive towards oblivion into an intellectually mastered power pullout into a safe and level flight of physical and metaphysical success where after all 
we may turn our spaceship Earth's occupancy into a universe-exploring advantage. Taking the concept of Spaceship Earth even further is the British scientist James Lovelock, who first published his Gaia hypothesis in 1979 and has continually updated the theory since, with books like The Revenge of Gaia in 2006 and most recently The Vanishing Face of Gaia in 2009. Lovelock explained the Gaia hypothesis to me as follows. I did produce a theory of the Earth which is a holistic one, and it does seem to answer a lot of questions about the Earth, and suggests that it is a self-regulating system, that is to say the climate and the atmospheric composition, the ocean composition, the surface soils, all stay more or less at a state which favours the biosphere. Despite its controversy, Lovelock says that the Gaia theory has now had over 10 tests and they all come out positive, or at least there's no falsification. Life cycle assessment At a more pragmatic level, there was also a movement since the 1960s that led to the modern practice of life cycle assessment, or LCA. In an illuminating review of the history of life cycle assessment, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency claims that its origins can be traced to a publication launched at the World Energy Conference in 1963 by Harold Smith, which contained his calculation of cumulative energy requirements for the production of chemical intermediates and products. Then, in 1969, a study by Coca-Cola laid the foundation for the current methods of life cycle inventory analysis. Their research assessed different beverage containers to determine which had the lowest releases to the environment and least affect the supply of natural resources. In a process now familiar to LCA practitioners, the Coca-Cola study quantified the raw materials and fuels used and the environmental loadings from the manufacturing processes for each container. This emergent methodology became known as a Resource and Environmental Profile Analysis, or REPA, in the US and as an eco-balance in Europe. The Environmental Protection Agency estimates that approximately 15 REAPers were performed between 1970 and 1975, and although this dropped off once the OPEC oil crises were over, the technique continued to develop quietly. During this time, Europe took the lead with the establishment of an Environment Directorate by the European Commission. In addition to standardising pollution regulations throughout Europe, it issued the Liquid Food Container Directive in 1985, which required member companies to monitor the energy and raw materials consumption and the solid waste generation of liquid food containers. Towards the end of the 1980s, especially with growing concerns around waste management, life cycle assessment was revived and refined as a tool for analysing environmental problems. In fact, it became so popular that, in 1991, 11 state attorney generals in the United States expressed concerns that LCAs were being used to make misleading green claims. They therefore urged that companies desist from using LCA until a clear methodology could be standardised and agreed. 
This action, together with pressure from elsewhere in the world, led to the development of two LCA standards as part of the International Standards Organization, or ISO 14000 series. ISO 14041 is on life cycle assessment, goal and scope definition and inventory analysis, and ISO 14043 is on life cycle interpretation. These have subsequently been replaced by ISO 14040 and ISO 14044. Besides these efforts by ISO, in 2002, the United Nations Environment Programme, or UNEP, joined forces with the Society of Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry to launch the Life Cycle Initiative, an international partnership. The initiative comprises three programs on life cycle management, which mainly focus on skill development, life cycle inventory, which focuses on open access life cycle data, and life cycle impact assessment, which focuses on expert exchange of best practice. The result of all of these developments is that today life cycle assessment is widely understood and employed, often using software like SimaPro. It is now understood to be the assessment of the environmental impact of a product in a cradle-to-grave approach, whereby all the pollution from the stage of digging or harvesting raw materials to the waste that remains after using a product is taken into account. The aim is to minimize the environmental burden throughout the complete production chain rather than optimizing individual production processes within that chain. Cradle to Cradle One of the most integrated and powerful methodologies to emerge from all of these trends towards circularity is Cradle to Cradle. While the phrase was coined by Walter Stahel in the 1970s, its modern interpretation grew out of a system of life cycle development initiated by Michael Braungart and colleagues at the Environmental Protection Encouragement Agency in the 1990s and explored through the publication A Technical Framework for Life Cycle Assessment. Braungart told me how it all got started. He said, I was looking at complex household products and I identified in the TV set 4,360 different chemicals and I thought it doesn't just help to take any toxic stuff out of it. The concept was popularized when Braungart teamed up with US architect William McDonough and produced the book Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things, in 2002. Cradle to Cradle goes beyond cradle to grave thinking. As McDonough explained to me, what's typically done with life cycle assessments is a cradle to grave assessment, and so you end up with these limits. With cradle to cradle, you go past these limits. So you don't say there's only so much lithium or there's only so much copper. You say the deployment of this material on a global basis could be optimized in a cycle that looks like this. It becomes an optimization process rather than a minimization process. Hence, rather than simply considering impacts across the life cycle of a product and trying to minimize waste, the authors argue for closed-loop production, where waste is only acceptable if it is entirely reused by the system. Hence, all waste becomes food input, 
to the cycles of nature and the cycles of industry. In other words, it is either as a biological nutrient or a technical nutrient. McDonough elaborates as follows, The idea is that you would design something as a biological nutrient so that it can go back to the soil to refresh the soil and rebuild the soil, rather than be wasted or toxify the soil through the air and the water. And then other things we see as technical nutrients that are designed to be in infinite closed cycles in technology and manufacturing. Cradle to Cradle is essentially about designing for sustainability and being ambitious about it. As McDonough and Braungart say in the book, as long as human beings are regarded as bad, zero is a good goal, but to be less bad is to accept things as they are, to believe that poorly designed, dishonorable, destructive systems are the best humans can do. This is the ultimate failure of the be less bad approach, a failure of the imagination. From our perspective, this is a depressing vision of our species' role in the world. What about an entirely different model? What would it mean to be 100% good? In some senses, cradle to cradle goes even beyond the common conceptions of sustainability. Sustainability is boring, Braungart told me. What would you say if I were to ask you about your relationship with your wife? How would you characterize it? Would you call it sustainable? If this is the bigger goal, sustainability, then I feel really sorry because it doesn't celebrate human creativity and human nature. To take forward the idea, the two authors have formed a company, the McDonough Braungart Design Chemistry Company, through which they offer cradle-to-cradle certification of products. As to which companies are leading, McDonough points to Shaw Carpets in the USA, which takes its old carpet back and all the new carpet is designed around the cradle-to-cradle protocol. So you have this closed cycle of intelligent, safe material chipping away at £4.5 billion a year of waste. That's a huge shift. The US Postal Service is another example. If you get an envelope from the Postal Service in the United States, that's express mail, it's cradle-to-cradle certified. So there are 700 million of them, all with the cradle-to-cradle stamp on them. Braungart believes you will see the Netherlands become a complete cradle-to-cradle country. In addition, he sees rapid progress in Israel, New Zealand and Wales, concluding that it's amazing because it frees people from feeling guilty for being here, giving them the opportunity to become native and to celebrate human genius on this planet.